Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. I'm your host of this week's Art Break, Carolina Sique. In this fourth installment of Art Break, I got to interview David Melville over Skype, our managing director at ISC, to talk about some curious Shakespearean connections to places that Shakespeare references in his play and David has actually witnessed in real life in his hometown in England. If you'd like to see any photos regarding anything we talk about, go ahead and check out our Instagram, Facebook, and check us out on iscla.org in the tab podcast. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to our fourth installment of Art Break. It's our fourth already. I'm your host, Carolina Sique, and I'm here with David Melville, um, our managing director. And today's topic is going to be... I, I believe we're calling it Curious Shakespearean Connections. Yeah, that sounds good. So, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. About me? Well, as many people know, I come from England. I, you know, That's where I grew up and um, came over here. Gosh, 95 is when I met Melissa and we were doing Hamlet. Um, we did it in London and it went over to New York. And that's when I met Melissa and that's when I sort of started my American adventure. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I grew up in England and uh, some of what I was thinking about talking about today was some of my sort of own personal connections with Shakespeare from where I come from. Mm. But I was thinking, actually, Carolina, uh, before we dive in and get started, you are a very sort of recent um, addition to the ISC family. And in fact, you started before we, you know, we went on this sort of uh, enforced hiatus. You'd only been working for, was it a week or two? Yeah, I think just about uh, two or three weeks. Um, I just started working, so, and now I'm here. Now I'm creating the podcast, which is so exciting. I think, I think we spent more time talking in the virtual world than we have actually face to face in the office. Definitely, great, great timing. <laughs> so I actually don't know a huge amount about you either. So can you tell us a little bit about you and you know particularly any sort of connections that you have to Shakespeare and stuff? Yeah, definitely. I'm a born and raised uh, Californian, so Californian. I've lived in Los Angeles County my whole life. Grew up in Norwalk. Now I live in Whittier. And I started getting into Shakespeare probably around sixth grade. We were reading Shakespeare. We read Midsummer Night's Dream, and I loved it. I, I was surprised at how quickly I grasped onto it. And... Yeah, wow. I mean that was in, that was in sixth grade. Yeah, I was like eleven or twelve. Wow. But um, I loved I love Shakespeare. I love I love writing. One of my other I mean I'm an actress, um, but one of my other passions is writing. And so, whenever I read Shakespeare, I just thought like, wow, the writing's so beautiful and and so unique, and it's poetic in a way that we would never speak in in modern times i guess a midsummer night's dream really is the gateway drug i think to to shakespeare for for <laughs> so many young people you know when, oh, yeah. when, and we've done it i don't know how many times we've done it in the park now but uh whenever we do it it, it just brings out the audiences like nothing else and especially you know people feel that it's of all the shakespeare plays it's the one it's really safe to bring the little ones to because there isn't too much that's dirty and there's not too much that's violent, you know, because there can be a lot of that mm. in Shakespeare. Um, but oh, uh, it's really fun to see, you know, the other families come out for that show and they, you know, all the kids dressed as fairies and everything. So it's not surprising that that might have been the play that 
brought you into it. In fact, I think actually the first Shakespeare play that I saw was A Midsummer Night's Dream at Regent's Park mm. Open Air Theatre in London. Now, did you, you did you study in England? Um, I did. I studied in England a year ago, actually. I was um, studying abroad in England for my final semester, and it was awesome. It was so great. It was like a dream come true. I took some Shakespeare classes while I was out there, obviously. It was the perfect time to go and study Shakespeare. I went and saw the Globe, and I studied at the University of Kent in Canterbury, which was also really cool because I love Chaucer, so it was really nice to kind of be a oh, part yeah, of yeah. history in that way. And Christopher Marlowe is from Canterbury. You know, oh, yes. a, lot of, a lot of people thought that I actually went to the University of Canterbury, uh, University of Kent at Canterbury, because I, mm -hmm. uh, I was dating a girl from there. And um, <laughs> I actually used to love going to the, the seafood restaurant in Whitstable, and I used to eat a lot of oysters there. The local oysters are really good. And one day, one of them gave me hepatitis. <laughs> I got really sick. I had to abandon my flat in London where I've been, and I've been working there as a, as a, basically a short order cook, I think, in a veg vegetarian restaurant. And uh, I had to go and live with my girlfriend. Uh, well, I didn't have to, but that's kind of what happened. And uh, and so I just sort of ended up getting sort of infiltrated into the university life there. And, and people thought that I was actually a student. I wasn't. I was. And I, I once I recovered from hepatitis, I actually ended up getting a job at the seafood restaurant where I got ill. And oh, I, worked well. there, I worked there for about a year. Uh, so I, I know Canterbury uh, oh. and Kent University really well. It's a great place. Oh yeah, you, if you went to Whit if you ever went to Whitstable, you probably would have seen it. It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. On the beach there. Great restaurant. Um, well, today we're talking about curious Shakespearean um, connections. David, you were talking about how when you went back to England recently, you were remembering a lot of references that Shakespeare made in the places that you had grown up. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a bit? yeah. We'll just get this out of the way. My brother was very sick and sadly did pass away um, at the end of March. And it all happened very suddenly. And, and I found myself, because we've been doing um, Shakespeare's Fools and Drunks in the studio, which is that one-person sh one show I do where I sort of an anthology, an anthology of Shakespeare's clowns, but then also with a, a, a sort of tasting menu of what we call Elizabethan cocktails. Not that Elizabethans drank cocktails, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was mostly like wines that are spiced and uh, things like posset and these. And so we have a sort of tasting menu of those. And... You know, so it's an exploration of uh, those drinks, Shakespeare's clowns, and and some of his drunks. And then suddenly, right at the end of that, my brother was taken sick, and I had to run back to England to look after him. And I found myself all of a sudden, you know, looking after him, but with you know, mm. uh, you know, just thinking about that part of the world. And you know, and and part of my uh, show had been about um, Will Kemp and his journey from London to Norwich, which we'll get on come to in a little bit but it was the route I found myself on every day going to the hospital so this sort of sparked me to think about you know what what are the other sort of Shakespearean connections that that really connect me and the bard and our, our part of the world because really he didn't as far as I know go there very much he said he didn't write about it or mention it so it's, what I've chosen is a highly sort of tenuous subject trying to stretch any kind of connections I can find in Shakespeare's work or around it that connect, you know, the locale of where I grew up with uh, with Shakespeare. And this is what I came up with, a list of these five. But I, I warn you, as they go along, they get more and more tenuous and, and very hard to actually make a, a, a really sort of conclusive, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, connection. But that's what I have for this week. 
Well, here's some some curious Shakespearean connections. The first one is in Ipswich. So Ipswich, yes, Ipswich is a town in Suffolk, and it's um, about 13 miles from the house where I I grew up. My family lived for um, well over a century, and mm. uh, it was a, it was a very old house that I lived in. Um, it was built in 1604, which uh, well, and probably earlier actually, but the first record of it was 1604 when when Shakespeare definitely was writing and writing some of his best plays. That always I always felt sort of kind of very, you know, when I was reading Shakespeare, I sort of look at the beams and the building and stuff and think, God, you know, this stuff was around and being built when when this was being written. But Ipswich, Ipswich is about 13 miles away from my house, and and I'm doing this research for this episode. I found out that it actually was a major stop on uh, Shakespeare's touring circuit. They had the permanent theatres in London, but they often went on tour uh, for various reasons. And quite often they would head into East Anglia, which is where I'm from, uh, Mm. and they would start, they would get a boat in London and sail up around the coast. Um, And so they put all of their their stuff and this wasn't a small operation they had you know they brought a lot of you know costumes and set and props and things with them and so they put them all on a ship and they'd sail up the coast and they would perform in Malden in Essex and then Harwich and then they'd come down the river and perform in Ipswich and Ipswich was apparently a major stop for them and they would uh, play you know often for several weeks there and uh, apparently on record there's a record of them performing A Midsummer Night's Dream in Ipswich in uh, 1595. And they got a record uh, take of 40 shillings for that performance, oh, wow. which was the most they ever made. And certainly not as much as they made when they came back in uh, about 10 years later, 1603, 1604. They were forced to go on tour because the theatres were closed uh, due to the plague. I think we've covered that topic in another uh, <laughs> podcast, but there they were on tour, and um, and this time they 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 busted out Hamlet and All's Well That Ends Well and a play called The Mayor's Play, which I don't know anything about. Maybe the mayor had written a play and he forced them put to put it on, but they didn't get nearly as much as they did when they did uh, uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, so you know, going back to the point that we made earlier, A Midsummer Night's Dream is you know even back then it was bringing out the audiences. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, so Ipswich was apparently a, a major stop, and then from there they would uh, they would buy uh, carts and I guess some horses or oxen or whatever, and uh, and they'd head off into the country and often going to Lavenham, Hadley, Barry St Edmunds, and all, all heading off uh, to Cambridge, which obviously was going to be a, a really great stop for them. Um, so there, yeah, Ipswich, a big Shakespeare town, apparently. I had no and idea. And this is all in uh, southeast England, right? Southeast is- England, yeah. So this is, um, I grew up on the Essex-Suffolk border. And the closest town to us actually was Colchester, which was about six miles away. But Ipswich was the other big town, and that was about 13 miles away. I can't even imagine moving all of those set pieces oh, on a boat, no less. I know. I think that's how they started out. Before they built the permanent theatres, they... They would tour around, you know, and they would perform in either in rich people's houses or or in uh, an inn yard. Uh, so they probably, you know, they they got used to touring quite lightly. But I think by the time they were doing these massive productions in London, they were obviously, you know, there was some incentive to to, to bring at least part of that on the road with them. Um, you know, probably couldn't do as much as they wanted to. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, can you imagine? 
I can't even even fathom. We used to um in Castle Long Beach, we used to take our shows onto the Queen Mary, and I can't even imagine going across the the city, let alone across the whole the state, the country, even. Yeah, I wonder if they performed when they were on the boat. That might have been the original um, like Disney cruise tour or <laughs> with Shakespeare's company. That would be really cool. Often but people our... ask us, you know, if, you know, because we're doing Shakespeare in the park, and they say, "Well." Couldn't you just bring this to, you know, our school or our library or something like that? And, you know, on the one hand, it would be great. And we'd love to be able to do that. But the thought of upending all of that and moving it, you know, even as, you know, relatively light as our productions are, it's still a huge amount of equipment. Oh, I'm sure. Our second curious Shakespearean connection is, is in Kersey. Can you tell us a little Kersey! bit Kersey is a little village. Um, gosh, I think it's probably about, you know six miles or so away from our home and uh we used to go there to feed the ducks when i was a little boy because um it's a sweet little um village i i I wonder if we can put a picture up with this on the website or something but um it's really idyllic all these all these old medieval buildings and and you come down a hill uh, on the road and at the bottom of the hill there's a ford and uh by the old mill and, and all these ducks in the in the stream so we go and uh feed the ducks in the ford no you know if a car came along the ducks had to sort of quack and get out of the way and but when we were doing love's labor's lost God, it was 2011 i think and uh, i was thrown into directing it because as usual normally when i end up directing something it's because somebody else quit <laughs> that's, how my, <laughs> that's how my directing career started and normally seems to be because <laughs> i you know i prefer to act in the shows really but you know mm. I, you know, I'm getting, I know, I, I like directing more and more, but, um, but this was one of those early ones where like, well, okay, I guess I can do that. And, uh, <laughs> so we're doing Love's Labour's Lost and I came and, uh, across this line uh, that Baroon says, taffeta phrases, silken terms precise, I do forswear them and here I protest and I hear protest, henceforth my wooing mind shall be expressed in russet yeas and honest cursy noes. So when we got to that bit, somebody said, well, there's many bloody sounds at all. Can we just cut this? And I was like, no, no, that's the village of Kersey where I come from. And it's one of the few places near me that uh, Shakespeare ever mentions. Really the only other sort of local place that he mentions is Ipswich. And I can't even remember what play that was in. I think it was in Henry VIII. Uh, So it just became very important to me that this actor, (laughs) it was Sean would say this line. And, uh, and the Kersey he's talking about here is is Kersey was actually famous for making wool, and still even when you go there today, you can still there's a, still a few sheep farms, but not so much. Most of that part of the country now is fruit farms, mm. or actually maybe not so much anymore. But it, for a while it was, uh, and Kersey became a type of wool because they were famous for exporting this sort of rough wool that was uh, popular for making stockings and underclothes and things like that uh, and became a very highly prized commodity to the extent that it became a bit like um you know like we call vacuum cleaners hoovers do you do that over here every every vacuum cleaner is yeah. called a hoover so every, every type of rough woolen cloth thing became called a kersey just a type so uh, i guess uh, and and it was really back in the uh, you know, the, the 13th century that that sort of happened. So by the time we got to Shakespeare, he probably wasn't even thinking about the village. He was just thinking about the type of wool. But there we go. A very tenuous connection between Shakespeare and my part of the world. Oh, he, he also mentions it in um, Taming of the Shrew. His lackey with a linen stock on one leg 
and a Kersey boot hose on the other. I think they're talking about um, when Petruchio uh, is coming to marry Kate, and they're you know they look really crazy. Him and his him and Grumio, his his servant. Mm. We did that show. God, when was that? God, I think it was twenty fourteen. And we went crazy in that moment. We had him. Uh, we had he did a sort of strip routine, and <laughs> the guy it was Luis Galindo. So he didn't have a kersey boot hose, but he did. Uh, he did have uh, stripper pants. So he would <laughs> pull off these pants, and he had a little uh, uh, thong with a like a, a le- leopard skin thing over the front, and oh, um, wow. and and then right on his exit, he would leap around to 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 go off, and it was of course it was a g-string, so you could see his buttocks, and this <laughs> caused more controversy with our audience than anything we've ever done with some of the you know the violence and stuff that we've put on stage you know the families you know they were fine with but a pair of buttocks on stage is is a bridge too far (laughs) i think you also mentioned last time we talked about this that uh, you you got this ceramic cup from kersey for for one of the first productions oh that's right yeah yeah there's a lovely pottery there i think it's still there and when Melissa, so, you know, I was taking the, after we got married, I took her to visit some of my favorite places and took her there. And um, so we bought this little goblet, a sort of ceramic goblet. When we did our first production of Macbeth in 2000, we were still in New York. I thought it'd be really cool to use this goblet because it was come, you know, from village near home and, you know, just had a connection to it um mm. so we used it in the in the show and of course uh, learned a very va- valuable lesson that ceramics on stage don't last very long <laughs> this thing this thing got broken very very quickly by the witches <laughs> um and then all the goblets then were replaced with these fake pewter things i think and then i got into trouble because i kept breaking them in the banquet scene because um, I had to, th- I had to throw them at Banquo's ghost, and everyone, you know, and, and they would bend and break and snap, and people would get very annoyed at me because I wasn't treating the props correctly. I was like, "How do you want me to throw these so they don't break?" I mean, it's literally once it's left my hand, I have no control over what happens, <laughs> or I could just place it in front of Banquo, you know. So yeah, but but we did, we still have the goblet. We glued it back together. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Uh, our third curious connection is will kemp's nine days wonder will kemp's nine days wonder yes so i i kind of alluded to this a little bit because i talk about it in that show that i've been doing the fools and drunks so will kemp was shakespeare's first sort of really successful clown in fact will kemp was much more successful than shakespeare when shakespeare first started writing you know he was super popular comic actor and famous for doing these jigs that he would do after the performance of the whatever the main play was he would do a little jig and a jig wasn't just a dance it was it was also incorporated um, music and improvised songs uh, and it was normally around some kind of uh, you know farcical setting so it had characters in it, it was a little bit like a, a prototype of a, a, a musical comedy only with room to, you know, sort of mess around and, and, and sometimes take suggestions from the audience and, and make up these, you know, impromptu witty rhymes and stuff. And uh, so he was really famous for, you know, the stuff that he could make up on the spot, but also, you know, his, his ability, physical ability to, to do these, you know, comic dances, which probably looked a little bit like some of them, a bit like John Cleese doing his Ministry of Silly Walks or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, Morris dancing, which is I don't know if you've when you were England in England, if you ever came 
across Morris dancers, did you? No, I, I didn't. But, what is that? Well, that, you know, it's a very ancient tradition, actually. It's, you know, predates Shakespeare in that era by a long time. They're these funny dances, and you still people still do them in, in Britain. You have these troops of Morris dancers, and they're usually wearing sort of country white smocks and, and, and bells on their ankles and knees, and, and they bang sticks together in choreography, which is frankly a little underwhelming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And there's a lot of beer drinking and, and sort of English folk music and stuff. And it can often look, you know, a little bit twee and quaint and, you know. But and when it's done well, it can be really actually quite exciting. And mm. I'm sure Will Kemp, you know, really was a master at it. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so it was a Morris dance that he did uh, from London to Norwich, which is a journey of about 100 miles. And it was a, a, a wager that he took that he could do this and he stood to make quite a lot of money if he if, if he performed it and so he set off from london one day and he, and he and he made his way up into east anglia and eventually arrived in norwich and apparently he did this over nine days although it actually took him about a month because he had a lot of rest days <laughs> and sometimes he would get halfway to one village and then just stop and somebody get on a horse he go to the village and then the next day they'd sort of bring him back and he he could <laughs> carry his dance on it's not like the, uh, the Forrest Gump kind of deal where he, like, goes the whole way. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, he, you know, that was sort of the, the myth that he wanted, but, you know, you know, he did it on a technicality. But, you know, sometimes I mean, he would dance 10 miles in one day. I mean, it was not a, a, an insignificant feat. And also, he did this in February, which is, you know, it, during Lent. Mm. Uh, and it, in the most sort of uh, inclement weather, you know, still oh, yeah. in, in Britain, I mean, the climate's you know hasn't changed that much. So, uh, you know, there's frost on the ground. There's often snow, or if it's been raining, uh, there's a lot of mud. And especially, you know, the roads were not paved then. So, at mm. one point in his uh, in his journey, he ended up, you know, dancing through mud up to his waist. You know, it was oh, wow. just crazy. So, yeah, so he did. And the route he took, took him through um, Sudbury, which is where my brother's house is. And, and he would have danced more or less past my brother's window on his way um, to Bury St. Edmunds. And it was because I was, you know, my brother was in hospital. I was driving every day from Sudbury to, to Bury St. Edmunds. And I started thinking, you know, God, I was just talking about this in the show. And it's and here I am you know, following, you know, the same route. So that that's kind of what set me off on this this topic. But what I found, you know, so you know, in the digging into Will Kemp and that journey, what I found really interesting is why he was doing it, because he'd left Shakespeare's company just mm. prior to that, and Will Kemp had been one of the sharers in Shakespeare's company, um, and was one of the investors in the Globe Theatre, which um, was just had just opened when he did this dance, but and one of the first performances that he was going to do was Henry V uh, playing Falstaff. So apparently Will Kemp probably was the actor performing Falstaff. And at the end of Henry IV Part II, he's, it's promised that he's going to return in Henry V, and, and then he doesn't. And uh, he's basically written out of the play. He dies off stage, and mm. Will Kemp is ejected from the company, and we don't really know why, but you know, I have a theory that it might have something to do with the fact that he loved making stuff up and Shakespeare was becoming more and more of a powerful writer and probably didn't love actors who would prefer to just make their lines up. 
And in fact, you know, like a, a year or so after this, he writes Shakespeare writes Hamlet, and you know, in his vice to the players, he said, "And let those, let your clowns speak no more than is set down for them." So it might be that he was thinking about Will Kemp when he wrote that line. So, so I think that that Kemp did this incredible stunt as a um, as a way of uh, sort of proving his validity and 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 showing, you know, those bastards in the Globe Theatre that he was going to be more famous than them and and for a while he was and and he finished his uh, his task he, he arrived in Norwich he actually arrived a little bit earlier than he thought uh, but he decided not to enter the city because there wasn't enough of a crowd yet <laughs> so, so <laughs> that he, sounds he like back- an actor yes exactly <laughs> he, he, he backtracked for a day and then came back when there was a crowd and and, and then entered the city and uh yeah, and I think that you know the the route that he chose actually might have mimicked a touring track that they would have used. So that might have been the reason he just decided to go to all of those villages and well, on the way. So anyway, that's that's Will Kemp dancing through East Anglia. A big rebellious screw you to to Shakespeare, basically. Yeah, and I um, and I feel an affinity with Will Kemp because you know I just played bottom. And, uh, actually, I don't know how many of Kemp's characters I've played. Actually, our, our great comic actor Danny Campbell uh, really covered uh, Will Kemp's line really well because he was a great bottom. But he also played um, Dogbury, which is one of Will Kemp's parts, and he played Falstaff mm-hmm. for us in in both Henry's and and Merry Wives of Windsor. So, yeah, Danny really sort of most successfully, you know, followed Will Kemp's track. I've done more of uh, Robert Armin was the other big clown that took over when when Kemp left the company, and I've I've done more of his like Festy and Touchdown and and those clowns. That's really cool. I wish I could have seen some of these productions. I mean, I've only come on the last you know couple weeks. Well, well, one day we'll have to to lock you in a room with all the archival DVDs, and you can't come out <laughs> and record out with everything. I'll be an ISC expert by the time I'm out of there. Or I uh, want to quit. <laughs> <laughs> our our fourth connection is Simon Sudsbury's head, which we we mentioned a little bit in just this last one with Will Kemp, right? Well, Sudbury is the is this little market town, and that's about ten miles from where I grew up, and that's where my my brother moved to, and and his house is there. Um, so I found out about this when I've started, you know, my brother and I were moving his stuff into his house and we met his neighbors who are all amazing. He lives in this lovely little tenement. Um, I guess they would have called it, called it in, in Elizabethan times, but, um, said something like an old, I think it's Jack, Elizabethan or Jacobean sort of, uh, farmhouse building that's been divided up into, into houses. Mm. And, uh, and it's right next to this church called St. Gregory's and, uh, and in meeting his neighbors, this lady was telling me about Simon Sudbury's head that lives in the wall of St. Gregory's Church. And, the, and his house is right next door to the church. And I was fascinated about this. So there's a head living in the wall. Can you tell me more about this? Because, oh, yes, he was, um, he was Richard II's Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and Richard II, I think, is possibly my all-time favorite Shakespeare play. And, and I got to play Richard for ISC in 2007 um, when, we were still, when we were still at Barnstall Park. So anyway, so the minute I heard that, I was like, I've got to find out more about it. And uh, 
uh so i did a little digging and yeah he was um he was beheaded in the peasants revolt which i think is not really something that's covered uh in shakespeare's version of richard the second although there is a sort of earlier play that does cover that that part but um so uh, simon sudbury uh, he was the Bishop of London, and he went on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in the last year of his life, uh, he was the Lord Chancellor of England, and incredibly unpopular because he was uh, trying to inst uh, instate the, the poll tax, which every time that's come up in Britain, um, it's always ended up in riots. Even Margaret Thatcher mm. tried to do it uh, in the 80s, and that was a disaster. And uh, she should she should have looked back in history and realized that uh, you know the last person that tried that got his head cut off, and uh, so <laughs> yes, Simon Sudbury was was dragged out of the Tower of London, uh, dragged to Tower Hill, and was beheaded after eight blows to his neck. Oh, his his body was afterwards buried in Canterbury Cathedral, though his head, after being taken down from London Bridge, so they would put the traitors heads on uh, on a spike on london bridge although this was oh, the wow. peasants yeah the rebels did this rather than the you know the authorities but so, is he still uh, at the cathedral i was just there uh, like last year but I was I think his body, his, you know let let us say this 85 percent of him is in the cathedral and the other 10 percent <laughs> is in st gregory's <laughs> a, a, a friendly chap uh found uh took the the head off the spike on on that was on london bridge and brought it back to Sudbury, and uh, and Simon Sudbury had uh, financed part of the building of St Gregory's, which is the church next to my brother's house, and uh, and so they honoured him by placing his head in a little cabinet, and uh, once a year it's unlocked and people can look at it, and and I'm pretty sure if you go online and Google this, you can find pictures of him, and it's like a little shriveled, shrunken head, and there he is, and and it's one of my brother's neighbours. Uh, who helps to arrange the flowers at the church actually has the key to it. So I've always been meaning to try and see if I can persuade her to give me a private viewing because there's only one one day a year when he's actually on uh, available to the public. Yeah, it's a rather a macabre thing. And as I said, these connections get very, very tenuous. <laughs> like this character who wasn't really in a Shakespeare play, but, you know, it was a, a period that was treated by Shakespeare. Uh, mm. Yeah, so there he is. And incidentally, talking of body parts being preserved i know we've probably mentioned to you that we did a musical gosh when we do i think it was 2012 we did the first sort of workshop production of it and we've been working on it ever since called red barn and it's a musical about a murder that happened in the village next door to mine in 1827 village of Polstead. it's it's just a cut a long story short he's the the, the murderer was the sort of wealthy landowner's son and he was having an affair with the daughter of the local mole catcher and she got pregnant so he did away with her and buried her in the red barn and then uh, ran away to london and put an advert in the paper for a wife he had a hundred replies and and then he married one of them and ended up opening a school with her uh, a school for young ladies and he would have got away with it but the dead girl's stepmother started having these dreams uh, telling her to go and search in the barn and she persuaded her husband the mole catcher to go and dig with his mole tools and and they found the body and then there was a manhunt and they got William Corder his name was the murderer and he was executed and the largest public execution held to that point 20,000 people attended in Bury St Edmunds and uh, after he died his body was taken down and dissected and anatomized and his skin was used to bind a copy of an account of his crimes 
and what was left they served they they they, they preserved so in Moises Hall Museum in Bury St Edmunds, if you care to go and look, or you can look it up online, I think there's pictures of it there, they have this book, which is bound in his skin, and they also have this tanned piece of his his scalp and an ear. <laughs> oh, wow. um, so this was something that the English liked to do, apparently. You know, even people ask me why I moved to America. and <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, talking about tenuous Shakespearean connections, when, when Corder was executed... That morning there was a performance. Oh, no, that evening there was a performance of Macbeth in London. I think it was Macready uh, was playing Macbeth, and um, when they get to the famous line, "Is execution done on Corder?" as in the Thane of Corder, um, uh, somebody stood up in the gallery and said, "Yes, he was executed today at two o'clock in Bury St Edmunds," and there was a big cheer. Um, so you know the the crime had become so sort of famous that it even sort of pervaded that moment of a performance of Macbeth. So yeah, preserving preserving dead things. And uh, and here's something completely non-Shakespearean. There's a pub uh, next door to this house, my brother's place in, in, in Sudbury, called The Mill. And uh, in it they have, if you go in, in the front, they, in the ground, there's a little glass case. You can see uh, underneath into the sort of the foundations of the building. And there's a mummified cat. And uh, apparently it was an East Anglian custom while building something to to place a live cat in the foundations. Oh, um, really? <laughs> yeah. That's a very uh, d- d- morbid kind of tradition. but It is, isn't it strange? I think it's to ward off witches or, or, or bring the building good luck or something like that. But when they were renovating the the building in the 70s they found this cat and they removed it and then they suddenly had all these calamities so they put it back <laughs> <laughs> so it's just there now under the glass case yeah it's there it's on it's in the back in the foundations but there's a little glass thing and it's got a little light on it so you can see this poor desiccated beast that made a horrible end anyway those are my people <laughs> um it's it's very funny to see how much um mummifications really a thing during this time keeping dead body parts but i i, I understand so. the curiosity I, I mean i wonder if they were more used to that sort of thing like in romeo and juliet you know that whole last act or the, the last big scene is is in the tomb and the mm. bodies are i don't i don't think they're even meant to be buried they're just lying there aren't they i mean so she mm. you know when she wakes up, she's surrounded by all these the corpses of her ancestors. It's really quite macabre. But I wonder if if that was actually something that they were more used to. Great. And our, our last curious connection is Alphamstone. Am I pronouncing that <laughs> uh, correctly? Alphamstone, yes. Great. Now, this is where it gets extremely tenuous. But this is a story. I don't know. This appeals to me. It might not appeal to anybody else. Um, I'm sure it will. <laughs> It's a it's a bizarre thing. Um, so I was digging around, doing some research on the first purpose-built playhouse, which most people believe to be the theatre that was called The Theatre, which was built by James Burbage um, in the uh, 1579, I think, or around then. Actually, the first purpose-built theatre was called The Red Lion. And many people thought that because it was called The Red Lion, it was actually a pub that was just one of these in-yard theatres that they were performing at before they decided to, you know, to invest in building a structure that was for nothing other than performing plays. 
but um, actually it was a farm. And and the reason that they they know quite a bit about the the Red Lion Theatre um, was from several lawsuits from the, the the man that invested in it, whose name was John Brain. He was a a grocer from London, and he was you know having a little bit of a flutter, seeing if he could make some money uh, doing this. Um, mm. And he 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 sued um, several of his carpenters for not getting the work right in his theatre. But then there's another lawsuit that claims that he fraudulently financed the Red Lion by ripping this guy off in a mortgage deal involving six acres of property in the village of Averston, or Alphamstone as it's known today, which is on the border between Essex and Suffolk, which is right where I come from. And I saw that, I was like, what? And I went and, and I had a little look, and this like this is literally just a few miles from where I grew up. And so I, I started, you know, digging around and, and trying to find out more about it. And even actually when I was over there, I went I went to Elphinstone and I asked people if anybody knew anything about this. And I said, did you know that some of these fields are responsible for the birth of commercial theatre? And they all looked at me like I was completely crazy and none of them had heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> so John Brain, this grocer, um, was married to uh, his... his sister Ellen Brain married a blacksmith from Elphinstone called Edward Stowers and this man uh, had inherited this land and he mortgaged it to raise some money and then the person he mortgaged mortgaged it to died and then uh, so it just it was inherit the mortgage was inherited by somebody else and then somebody else died and then it ended up with his aunt was quite happy to just call it a write off and just give it back to him but John Brain stepped in on behalf of his his brother-in-law and said, well, let's, you know, I, I can probably, you know, I know a little bit about the law. Let me help you with this. Why don't you just make it over to me? And then um, I can help him sort it out. And so he he did this. And apparently he, he arrived at the blacksmith's house with this massive pile of papers. And the blacksmith looked at them all and, you know, oh, well, this looks very official. Good. Thank you for, for doing all this for me. And then sat on it for a couple of years and then and then tried to remortgage the land again to raise some money once more and found out by someone who could actually read that these papers <laughs> didn't tell him that the, he now owned the property, that uh, told him that he'd been completely swindled by his brother-in-law, uh, who uh, raised you know several hundred pounds on this uh, uh, land. And I, I guess the blacksmith made the assumption that he was using the money to invest in the Red Lion. And, and that's where this came out. And, and it's recorded in this, um, in this lawsuit. So uh, I did some like I said, did some digging around about that and and I actually managed to find out more information and found out that, you know, the, so the Red Lion was built in, in, in 1567 and, and I really, I think, only performed one play, which was like the uh, the feats of Samson or something like that and and was really quite a disaster and he'd built it too far out of town and nobody really wanted to go to it in the, you know, in the winter, so the whole thing folded. But it turns out that there's all this swindling didn't happen in 1567. It happened in 1572. So I think that the the theater that Stowers the blacksmith was referring to was mm. not the Red Lion, but in fact the theater, which is the theater that was built by James Burbage. And James Burbage was John Brain the Grocer's brother-in-law. So actually... I think the brain put his money from this field around the corner from my house 
into the theater, which then became incredibly successful and was um, you know, around that grew the Chamberlain's company of whom uh, Will Kemp and Richard Burbage, who was James Burbage's son, uh, were the stars and Shakespeare was the, was the star writer. So not only did uh, this field around the corner finance the building of the theater, but then they were incredibly litigious, these um, Elizabethans. They were always getting into fights and legal fights. And if they couldn't solve it, you know, they would just punch each other in the street. Um, <laughs> you know, as soon as the theater became successful, the guy that uh, owned the land, Giles Allen, was like, well, I should just be running that myself. So he, you know, there were all sorts of lawsuits going back between him and them and the brains and the Burbages and the Burbages apparently swindled the brains. And they're all sort of beating each other up, rather like the you know, folks in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the warring factions. And then oh, yeah. eventually, you know, they, they, they solved it after Bur James Burbage died. The sons decided, well, let's just screw this. Let's just upend and leave this litigious landlord and we'll just take all the timbers from the theatre and uh, we'll move them across the to the south of the river and we'll build a new theatre, which is what they did, uh, I think, on the 28th of December. They they broke it all down. So they must have been pretty good at making this thing that could grew apart in just a, you know, really a week or so. And they they took it across the river and there's a theory that they, because they had a very intense winter and that the Thames had frozen over, so they could do it very quickly by moving the timbers across the river and then they built the Globe Theatre. So in my highly spurious and utterly unfact-checked theory, <laughs> this field around the corner from my house not only funded the theatre, but also the bones of the theatre were then used to make the Globe, which is, you know, of course, Shakespeare's famous theatre. He moved into 1599 and, you know, performed all the great plays like Macbeth and uh, Hamlet and all the amazing, wonderful things. And it all came from a little piece of dirt around the corner from my house. And it sounds like it was it was born out of scandal, mostly. Oh, incredible. I mean, it's this stuff just, yeah, this, the, you know, they would be suing each other and then then they would form an alliance and stop suing each other and then sue someone else. And, oh, God, and the, the, you know, after Brain died, his widow was um, hounded by the Burbages who accused her of adultery and, and all sorts of things. It was, it got nasty. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> he might seem like, Brain seems like a real devious kind of Iago sort of character, but really, sort of, compared to everybody else, he was just, it was just business as usual. They were all, uh, you know, trying to screw each other over. Mm. I think that's very interesting. I mean, just to think about um, having been there and, and seeing those those large poles, those masts that hold the theater up. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure it's the different. It's different since it burned down. But um, just to think about how that was created out of out of that, out of something so close to your yeah. house, too. Yeah, I mean, so, and yeah, there's. I don't know. I mean, the theater must have been a. Quite a bit smaller than the Globe, and I mean, I think they built something that was much more fancy when they went over the river and could hold a lot more people. But um, they certainly used; they would reuse these timbers all the time. Possibly the house that I grew up in, but certainly the barn on our farm, which I think was built in late medieval period. But the timbers from it were even older than that because they came from a ship. So a lot of barns were actually built out of old ships. Uh, old ships timbers and there's there's at least one maybe two barns i think one of them is in neighboring buckinghamshire that's apparently made out of the timbers from the mayflower um, oh wow so that yeah re recycling um 
those old beams is you know these definitely you know you didn't just throw them away they were that oak once it's uh you know once it's settled and it's matured um it's it's like steel it's really really hard stuff it's amazing mm-hmm. it's incredible how those buildings that have been you know in east anglia they're well, and all over england actually but you know they've some of them have been there seven eight hundred years you know and they're pretty Still sturdy things and yeah you know, like, yeah and the, like the stuff you know out here in la that was built in the 50s is all getting termites and falling apart you know <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. Well, it, it seems like there's a lot of Shakespeare that you grew up around. It was it was almost like you were born into Shakespeare by fate. A little bit. <laughs> well, I'm not from his. I mean, he was, you know, from Stratford on Avon. So I'm not that's more in the middle of the country. And actually, I did go to a boarding school not far from there. So we, when I was a kid, we would go and visit Shakespeare's birthplace. But uh, there's so many references in his work that actually connect it to Stratford and you know like family names like the Ardens like it's come came from a family called the Ardens on his mother's side and you know so there's the forest of Arden and as you like it and uh, you know there's lots of plants and things and local sayings um, that are very sort of distinct to um, that part of the country so you know, it's it's really rich. You know, so if you you know if you grew up in Stratford and Avon, then you would really come from Shakespeare Company. About home. Oh yeah, I'm stretching it. <laughs> You're Shakespeare adjacent. He pa- yeah, Shakespeare adjacent. <laughs> he passed for you a few times. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for for sharing all of this with us. It's really cool. Very different side of history that we're not we're not used to hearing about so it's really cool to learn a little bit more about it so thanks david thank well thanks so for much. indulging me and i think you know it was, this was nice for me to trawl through this especially you know it's been a difficult time with my brother and everything but it's a way that i've sort of managed to feel connected to him well i'm glad thanks for for sharing with us i i really enjoyed this episode um if you like our, our break episodes, you can always find more of them um, on Apple Podcasts. We're now on Apple. Um, we're also on Spotify. And you could always find us on Anchor FM. Please don't forget to donate if you can to ISC. You can find that at iscla.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And once again, thanks, David. I had a really great time doing this with you. So did I. And it was nice to get to know you a little bit more, Carolina. All right, what's our tagline? Remember to stay socially distant, not emotionally.